From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When a Wheat Ridge mother gave birth to her second child, it set off a series of events that would lead to years of research about congenital diseases. I wasn't just looking for answers about my daughter's symptoms. I was looking for answers systemically. We'll talk about this under-discussed risk for expected mothers. Then, how the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action is affecting medical schools here in Colorado. And later, a project that encourages teenage boys of color to speak candidly about life's challenges, especially after isolation during the pandemic. Something else that changed our family getting closer. I think that was a good thing for our family with all the things I was going on. And after nearly a century, a music institution in Denver hits its final note. There is no tax deduction for giving a vehicle away to a friend or family member, but if you donate it to a charity or other tax-exempt organization like Colorado Public Radio, you can claim a tax deduction. Your donated car, motorcycle, or truck benefits you and it benefits CPR. Start the win-win donation process at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. When a Wheat Ridge author gave birth to her second child, it set off a series of events that would lead to years of research on congenital diseases. And now, a book. Megan Nix splits her time between Colorado and Alaska. Her memoir, Remedies for Sorrow, highlights an under-discussed risk for pregnant mothers. She spoke with Colorado Matters producer Tom Hess. When a baby is born in the United States, they are screened for a plethora of health conditions. Parents might remember the blood drawn from their baby's heel shortly after birth that is tested for things like sickle cell and cystic fibrosis. But when Wheat Ridge author Megan Nix gave birth to her second daughter, she learned of a disease that was remarkable both in its prevalence and its relative anonymity. Hi, Megan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So your daughter, Anna, was born here in Colorado. She was a smaller baby and she was quiet. You write of the birth, there's no red flag except the one inside my sternum, which feels like a damp fabric flapping wildly, unseen. Can you tell us about that day and about that feeling? Yeah, she was born at dawn and it was just that quiet sort of supernatural feeling time of day where the sun is just cresting the horizon and the room was totally silent and when she when I gave birth to her she was totally silent and anybody who's had a baby knows that you're waiting for that scream to light up the room and she just stared at me she I could tell that she was alive but she was very very small and just her eyes were just boring into me. And I just had this like feeling, this deep gong like alarm that something was different about her in a way that we would need to figure out. So the midwife placed her on my chest. Still, she was silent. And then they called an on call OB and rushed her to the corner and rubbed towels around her. And eventually she did cry. But in the next few days, she was very, very quiet for a newborn. She would kind of paw at me to nurse instead of crying. 
And she kept her eyes open a lot of the time for a newborn. She was my second born. And so I had something to compare it to. And I just had this intuitive feeling that there was something deeper, something as yet unidentifiable about her that I would need to dig into. Well, in the first medical indication that something might be off was a hearing test, right? Right. So she was the right before that they weighed her and she was only five pounds and she was 40 weeks. So that's called small for gestational age. And that's a red flag for a potential issue when a baby is that, you know, developed in utero and yet that small. And then when they rolled the hearing test cart into the room and as they inserted the wires, I was like, she's not going to hear. And it surprised me this, this sort of certainty of thinking that I had. And the technician handed her back to me and she said she didn't pass on either side. We'll try again tomorrow. And you write that doctors, nurses were sort of trying to reassure you that maybe there wasn't anything super serious going on, but that's not how you felt about it. Did you get the sense that they were trying to comfort you or just that maybe they weren't taking, didn't feel that same urgency you felt? I think it was both. I think that they didn't know what to make of these coinciding factors, her smallness and the failed hearing tests. But I also think that there is still this old trope of the hysteric woman. And as I was laying in the hospital bed saying, like, are you sure she's okay? Are you sure she's okay? It was sort of like, calm the mother let's get them to discharge. There was no real stopping to say, is there something, you know, that you feel is urgent? Is there something that you want to investigate? Here's a list of potential causes of hearing loss. Had that been mentioned, her disease would have been the very top disease on that list in terms of statistical likelihood of deafness caused by something that's not genetic. What don't we know about what it means to be a woman and particularly a pregnant woman who's navigating American healthcare? I think there's sort of this feeling that this is a problem to be fixed, to get the baby out, to make sure the mom doesn't worry too much about the pregnancy because that could affect the pregnancy. And really, it's a it's a slow process that requires some slower medicine. And I don't think obstetrics has has met those needs in women, you know, since the 1950s when women were being silenced and actually restrained to give birth. Of course, we have a much more humane system now, but it still is like, you know, our rate of unnecessary C-sections and just women's reporting of how their pregnancies and their questions go feels a lot more like false reassurance than it does narrative medicine where a woman is encouraged to tell her story and feel heard and feel seen and give birth, you know, in a way that is embraced rather than just like, let's get this finished before 5 p.m. You mentioned slower medicine. What do you mean by that? One of the conclusions that I reached while while writing my book and experiencing Anna's illness in a medical system that didn't feel like it was stopping to investigate its own dismissals and its its own unturned stones was this concept that Dr. Rita Sharon came up with. She's a doctor who 
had finished her medical degree and read a book called The Wings of the Dove. And as soon as she finished it, she went right back to get her PhD in literature. And she says and has written at length about the use of stories and the use of reading literature in order for doctors to practice better medicine. And that means adopting alien perspectives. So, you know, putting yourself in the patient's shoes and listening to them in in what's called narrative medicine, which is the term that she coined. But basically the premise is that a doctor slows down and instead of starting with the chief complaint of the patient, they start with, tell me your story. And while the pushback, of course, would be that doctors don't have time for this sort of thing, the benefit is actually to the doctor and the patient. It creates a bond of trust and it creates appointments that aren't rushed where the patient starts to lose hope in themselves and in the doctor. And there's a number of doctors who have said that the rewards are much greater than the time cost of spending more time with each patient. And getting back to your story, you find out that Anna has congenital cytomegalovirus, uh, CMV for short. Statistically, one in 200 babies will be born with it, according to CDC numbers. And of those, one in five will see birth defects or lifelong health problems. And yet you'd never been told about it leading up to your pregnancy. Right. So to give perspective on that, women across the board know about toxoplasmosis, which is the disease that is caused by kitty litter. So toxoplasmosis affects one in 10,000 babies. CMV, like you said, is one in 200. But it appears nowhere in prenatal literature, in doctors' discussions with pregnant women, And the kicker is that CMV is present and contagious in the saliva of one out of three toddlers. So because I had a two-year-old when I was pregnant, I was high risk. And 90% of women don't know that CMV exists. So all of these women who have young toddlers in their homes are taught to avoid kitty litter and lunch meats and sushi. And the real risk is right in front of them eating their lunch. CMV causes blindness, deafness, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, autism, stillbirth, and we are not told about it. And in your book, you speak to a number of healthcare professionals. What was the best explanation you got on why there wasn't more information on congenital CMV? I think the best honest voice that I encountered was a doctor who I just cold called in Texas. Her name's Dr. Gail Demler-Harrison. And she has been working in the CMV field for decades. And I told her about my daughter. Then I started to interview her and she realized I wasn't just looking for answers about my daughter's symptoms. I was looking for answers systemically. Like you said, like, why, why is this the case? How is it possible that there is this gaping silence and prevalence? And she said, you know, this is paternalism. This is doctors believing that they will worry women too much. And until OBs are forced to discuss CMV with women, they will not. Given the lack of discussion around it, it took some time to get healthcare providers to outline the treatment plans that you needed for your daughter. Is that right? Yes, we were 
from the very beginning, our care for Anna has been very self-directed. So we did receive a diagnosis in a timely way, which is very rare for CMV. Over 90% of children with congenital CMV are never diagnosed and never treated. And in her case, our pediatrician caught it when she was 10 days old. He's an excellent pediatrician, but after that, you are then transferred to infectious disease specialists. And even the infectious disease specialists that we saw, it was sort of like any, any child who has a diagnosis, it's pretty dizzying to put together your team, to understand the acronyms and to know how to enroll them in early intervention services and what kind of therapies they're going to need and who's going to come to your home and where do you seek alternative therapists. And so with CMV, that was even more so the case because there just isn't enough, there aren't enough doctors who specialize in CMV. And in Colorado, there's a CMV clinic at the Children's Hospital. But even even with that in place, we really had to say, we are going to find everything that we possibly can for her to reach her potential. A part of your story is the, and a part of Anna's story, is that it's split between treatments in Colorado and in Southeast Alaska, where your husband fishes during the summer. So you're split between these two places. And you find out that she is positive for congenital CMV shortly after you get to Sitka, Alaska. And you find out that she has to be placed on an antiviral immediately. But of course, this is an island that you're on that's only accessible by boat or plane. How does an antiviral like that make its way up to Alaska? <laughs> through through a very complicated set of hurdles and phone calls and good people who were helping us. And that was, you know, I just couldn't believe that this all was transpiring as we were traveling to this foggy remote place. We had Anna tested in Denver. And the next day I flew to Alaska with my mom and my newborn and my two-year-old. And our pediatrician said, you should go. Your husband's there. We can, you know, consult by phone. You can talk to the pediatrician there, which was very I'm very grateful for his his decision and his support of us coming here because to weather through her diagnosis without my husband would have been very difficult. But it did definitely make some of the logistics difficult, to say the least. And the pharmacist who had to get this medication for you is in Juneau, which is a 20 or 30 minute flight from Sitka. Can you read from the portion of your book when you get a call from this pharmacist in Juneau who has tracked down this medication for you? So we know at this point that we need to find a person who's really going to be devoted to getting the medicine to us because the medicine actually comes from a specialty pharmacy in the Midwest. And we've been told that this medicine needs to be kept at a certain degree to, before it reaches Anna, or it could be ineffective by the time it reaches her. So, while I make lunch, clean the counter, feed the baby, draw an erupting volcano, and try to find a snack with less than 20 grams of sugar that Zaley will eat, Michael, the pharmacist in Juno, is spending the same afternoon finding a pharmacy in the lower 48 that will ship the prescription to him in the right temperature-safe packaging. Then he is figuring out the flight schedules for every small plane that will fly from Juneau to Sitka. And then he makes a phone call to me, telling me he has found a pharmacy down south and a pilot up here 
who will hopefully make our convoluted scheme a reality. The specialty pharmacy in Indiana calls me next for my information. They're readying the package for Juno the following morning. The next day is a toilet bowl of rain. Whenever it wanes, Zaley and I scurry out to the deck. She draws a giant chalk X in pink, as though the plane might drop the package at our feet. When will it land, Mama? She asks. In the next six days? The next six hours? The next six minutes? She has a thing for six. Hopefully by six o'clock, sweetie. But I desperately hope not, because by then, the charter planes might be finished for the day, given what one Raven radio host has just called a river in the sky. My phone rings. It's Michael. The medicine's in Juno, he says, but it isn't on the plane. I sit down on the ground, crushed. When I opened the package to double check that it was correct, he tells me, I noticed it had been sent in powder form, not liquid. What does that mean, I ask, almost frantic. It's actually fine. It means you don't have to rush it home. It will be the right temperature whenever you mix it. I just needed to rewrite you some instructions for how to reconstitute it, he says, bubbly now. But I swear, he sounds a little short of breath. Is everything okay, I ask? Yes, he says. It's just, I'm on my way to the airport with it now. Knowing he's the manager of the pharmacy, I ask, you're personally driving it there? And he says, no, I'm walking. Actually, I'm running. Can you tell us why it was so important to get that medicine in a prompt fashion? You have to start that treatment within that first month of life because that's when the medicine has proven efficient at stopping the progression of the virus in the brain and stopping the progression of brain damage and hearing loss. Really, that, that month cutoff is critical for, for both diagnosing the child and treating the child. After Anna is born, you find a network of parents who have children with congenital CMV. What can you tell us about some of these children and the experiences that their families had? The first child that I came into contact with through his family actually died from CMV. And it was a family in Colorado whose son was born severely impacted by the disease. So he was medically complex. He had hundreds of seizures a day. He was nonverbal. He had severe brain damage. And his family was this sort of end of the spectrum that I had read about online, but couldn't quite imagine. And they were this really beautiful example to me of complete love for their child, even though he had died, and even though he had been riddled with pain and challenges and surgeries, they were completely devoted to him, as has been every CMV parent that I have ever met. I really had not had much exposure to the world of disability, whether that be through advertisements or social media or even the healthcare system. It was like this hidden subculture of children. I found these families to be rich in thought and and just depth and wisdom and without feeling like they were trying to prove that their children had overcome something. They just were living in this intentional, very attached way to their children, challenges and joys. Tell us more about the conclusions that you came to about what it can mean 
personally and culturally to prioritize the care and dignity of those who might be living with disabilities, particularly among children? Well, I came across this essay written by an Italian priest. His name was Father Carlo Nocchi, and he tended to children who were Russians who had been blown apart by landmines, who were starving in the streets. And these were, you know, forgotten and and very maimed, innocent people. And he set out to, th- to think about what do we do with the suffering of the innocent? And, and what is the point of life if some life is so difficult? And he contends that dealing deeply with the crises that we are faced with, with preventable disability or tragedy, that caring for those affected by it is actually a way of healing the atrocities from which those conditions originated. So sometimes war, famine, disease that has been dismissed. And he said that out of this suffering often comes supernatural acts of charity and marvels of science and communities that have a different transcendent way of living and seeing and feeling than we do in our often more complacent lives. Your work on this went beyond just your own daughter, Anna, and some of the people you met. You went to the state legislature as a part of an uh, effort to update infant screening policies. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment now has some resources for parents, and there's tips for preventing infection on their website. What else do we need to be doing? Right now... Three quarters of hospitals in Colorado will test babies who are either disproportionately small, have a small head size, or fail their hearing tests, which is a good start. But I believe, and so does every infectious disease specialist I've spoken to, that we should really be testing every single newborn for CMV. And that is because 90% of children with CMV are born asymptomatic. And so if we're only testing the children who fail their hearing tests, that's that's considered a symptom. So so is small for gestational age. But the other children, the other newborns who have CMV, who don't merit that first test, they can go on to lose their hearing by the age of three or four. And if we can get states to approve universal testing, then we will be catching and diagnosing and treating far more babies with CMV and preventing life-threatening challenges. As you've spoken with legislators and hospitals on this issue, what are some of the hurdles to getting these changes done? There's just this like blanket of misinformation that surrounds CMV. And so often when it comes to measures that need to be taken that are expensive to test more babies and treat more babies for it, people backpedal and say that's too expensive and nobody knows what it is. It's sort of a chicken or the egg. And I really think that the egg is educating as many people about CMV as possible and starting the conversation and establishing that it is an urgent public health issue that needs to be addressed. Megan, I'll get you out of here on this. How is Anna doing now? She's doing great. She is eight years old 
And we made the decision after we found out that she's profoundly deaf to get her cochlear implants. And she really adapted to them beautifully. We also became very involved with the deaf community in Colorado. And we um, learned sign language. There's a great program in the state of Colorado where we worked with a deaf adult for six years. And she became a close friend and taught our family so much about Anna and language. And so we've continued to use both spoken language and sign language in our family. And she, Anna is, she goes to the same school as her older sister. She loves singing. (laughs) She loves fishing like her dad. And she's just, you know, a joy of our life. Does she know she's in a book yet? Oh, yes. She loves the book. She wants to read it. And she likes to compare with her sister how many pages they're each on so that they get bragging rights. But she's very proud of it. And I'm very proud of her. Megan Nix, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Megan Nix is a mother and author who lives in Wheat Ridge. She spoke with Colorado Matters producer Tom Hess. Her book is Remedies for Sorrow which highlights an under-discussed risk during pregnancy. After speaking with Nix, we reached out to Dr. Ted Maynard. He sits on the board of directors for the Colorado Chapter for the American Academy of Pediatrics. We asked him what he tells patients about CMB. Well, first of all, I explained that those initial CMB stand for cytomegalovirus, a big medical word that you can forget now, and we'll just call it CMB. CMV, this virus is one of the herpes virus family of viruses. Uh, And like all the herpes viruses, this is something that's very common that's passed around among humans. Like all the herpes viruses, once you catch it, it's with you all your life. And most of us will catch it. About a third of us will already pick up CMV by the time we're five years old. And by the time we're middle-aged, half or even two-thirds of uh, all people will have already picked up CMV. Dr. Maynard says this common virus is much more serious if it is passed on to a baby before birth. He agrees with Megan Nix that congenital CMV has not gotten the attention it deserves in conversations that doctors have with their patients before and after birth. Many women have heard of uh, toxoplasmosis, uh, a parasite that can cause congenital infection, and women are warned not to change the kitty litter because it can be in the urine of cats. But toxoplasmosis only affects about 1 in 10,000 newborns, so CMV is far more common than most other infections. People worry also about Zika virus, which causes similar problems as CMV, uh, damage to the brain, seizures, cerebral palsy, hearing loss. But uh, CMV is far, far more common than Zika because it's everywhere all over the world. And Zika is only in the tropics where there's mosquitoes. Women who already have children or who work with young children may be at greater risk to contract CMV while pregnant. Dr. Maynard says sound hygiene practices can help. We know that when people study the children in daycare centers, especially large daycare centers with uh, more than 10 children, that about a third of all those children will be shedding live CMV virus in their urine or in their saliva at any given time. Uh, 
So women working with young children should be aware that there's always a chance they have CMV and they should be washing their hands carefully after changing diapers. They should not share utensils. Don't lick that spoon that you just had in the baby's mouth. And um, the recommendation is to not kiss your baby on the on the lips, but kiss them on the top of their head instead. Dr. Maynard also says that parents should also seek a CMV test right away if their baby does not pass their newborn hearing test. Again, that was Dr. Ted Maynard. He sits on the board of directors for the Colorado Chapter for the American Academy of Pediatrics. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As A River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled earlier this summer that colleges and universities may not use race as a factor during the admissions process. The brunt of that decision will be felt at Colorado's more selective programs. CPR's Paulo Shelsita reports that could have major implications for the future of medicine in the state. Getting accepted into medical school is one of the most selective processes in the world. Just ask Dr. Jeff Suhu, the guy who oversees admissions for the University of Colorado Anschutz School of Medicine in Aurora. We get 10,000 applications a year. There are thousands of people in that applicant pool that could successfully navigate our medical school and that would be great physicians, but we have a class of 184. That equals a less than 2% chance of getting accepted if you send in an application. And for people from historically underserved communities, this process can be even harder. So the school has used affirmative action to level the playing field. We've never assigned points or any specific advantage per se to those attributes. Rather, we've used someone's background to contextualize what their opportunities have been. Medical schools across the country have used affirmative action because the demographics of medical experts often don't match the demographics of their clients. At CU Anschutz, minority students make up 32% of the student population, which includes pre-med undergraduates and nursing students. Right now we are in the Ventanilla de Salud, the office of the Ministry of Health in the Mexican consulate. And it is a program that is in every Mexican consulate in the United States. This makes it the largest public health program for immigrants in the United States. That's Dr. Ricardo Gonzalez-Fisher. We met near the back of the consulate as passing people complained to relatives about long wait times. Through the clinic, Gonzalez Fisher advises Mexican immigrants on health issues, whether that's navigating the American health care system, vaccinations, or screenings. He says the clinic sees anywhere between 12 to 17,000 people a year. Gonzalez Fisher says his work in the clinic helps bridge equity gaps among Latinos, a community that has a historically low sense of trust in the medical system. We were screening for the knowledge about colorectal cancer screening. And we interviewed 
70 people one-on-one. -on -one. And it was very interesting to see that there's still this fatalistic idea about cancer. If I have cancer, I'm going to die. These kinds of health disparities and misconceptions are common among Gonzales Fisher's patients. They became especially apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. State data shows Latino people have the lowest COVID-19 vaccination rate among ethnic groups, with just over 50%. And that's just for the first dose. Gonzales Fisher worries these health crises will get worse as the full effects of the Supreme Court's ban on affirmative action becomes clear. There's more Latino doctors retiring than Latinos coming into medical school. For the Latino and other minority students trying to replace the retirees, the end of affirmative action has made their paths a bit murkier. Juliana Montoya is a public health undergraduate at Metropolitan State University of Denver, where a majority of students are people of color. When she graduates in 2024, she hopes to get a master's in public health to become a physician's assistant, a licensed medical professional who mostly works alongside doctors in primary care settings. They diagnose illnesses, order lab tests, and prescribe medicine. There's a bit less prestige, but much less tuition. Montoya worries that when she starts applying later this year, her full life experience won't be reflected. I in my application, always told myself I would be well-rounded. I would represent every facet of my life, the things that are very important to me. One of them being, I am first generation, I am Latina. To not be able to put that important piece on there that has defined a very fundamental part of me does worry me. I do worry about my chances moving forward. Are they gonna see the whole picture? Outside an employee break area at Denver Health's main hospital, Anschutz medical student India Bonner says she's worried about the next generation. She got into medicine because, as a black woman, she felt unrepresented in healthcare settings. The Supreme Court's decision really took a lot of steps back because even with affirmative action, like up to the point it was, there was still a lack of diversity. And now there's another barrier to people of color like becoming physicians. Both Bonner and Montoya spent some time finding their feet before committing to the healthcare profession. The goal was clearer to Dr. Prashant Francis, a liver doctor and research scientist with the CU School of Medicine. He always wanted to be a doctor, and he used to think the secret to being a good one was getting through school with the best grades possible. Now, as an assistant professor and a former president of Anschutz Minority and Allied Resident Council, he sees the flaw in that logic. Now that I'm on the other side of medical training, I see the difference in what somebody who's on the front end trying to get into medical school thinks is valuable for the field of medicine, and then what somebody who is actually practicing medicine finds to be valuable. In describing what he values in medical students, Francis recalled one of the most popular television doctors of the 2000s. One who's brilliant, but abrasive, to put it mildly. Medicine would absolutely collapse if everybody was like house empty. We really need people who can understand the science, can gather in all the information, but who are excellent at establishing relationships with patients, patients from very diverse backgrounds, patients who have different means and health insight, health information. Sue Hu, the CU Anschutz Admissions Director, hopes students like Bonner and Montoya, who have otherwise stellar academic records and a desire to serve underrepresented communities, continue to apply to medical school. But with affirmative action gone, he's worried a less competitive applicant pool will emerge. You should apply. 
it was never a single thing or a single checkmark that got you into medical school, and it's not going to be in the future. Still, Gonzales Fisher says getting through med school will be tough for those who do make it in, for the same reasons people of color needed affirmative action in the first place. Sometimes they don't have the opportunities to shadow their teachers or to participate in clinical research or things because they don't have time because they have to work, they have to take care of a family. So it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder, but we will find ways. Lawyers nationwide are reviewing the complete decision to figure out how schools may move forward with their mission to admit diverse students while following the new SCOTUS ruling. The initial effect of the ruling is expected to start becoming apparent later this year when college applications are due. I'm Paolo Shasada, CPR News. Life is full of changes, especially when you're a teenager and leave it to a pandemic to make those years even more challenging. We also know that the losses and grief from COVID disproportionately hit young people of color. But how many of them have really talked with their families about what they were feeling? One 13-year-old from Denver recently got that chance in an interview recorded with his mom. Hi, my name's Cameron Strong, and I'll be talking about how COVID impacted my and my family's life. I have my mom here with me asking me questions. Hi, I'm Cameron's mom, and we'll just say that's my name because that's what many of his friends know me as. So my first question is, when did you first hear about COVID? Um, I just remember the long spring break we had, which was pretty nice for me, at least, since I didn't really know about COVID at first. Along those same lines, when did you realize that COVID was serious? I would say when my brother's dad died. One of the reasons he had died was because of COVID. So that's probably when I realized it was serious or something I at least needed to like have in the back of my head. What would you say was the hardest moment or moments about COVID? Probably going online for school. I'm not someone who really likes being on a device or a computer for school. I like being in a classroom, learning like face-to-face. Another thing was when my brother's dad died, that was really impactful on me, even though I didn't really know his dad like that. It was still kind of impactful because that's my brother. And then when my dad had a stroke, that was really impactful. I thought my dad was going to die. So that really, that really hit me hard. Mm. Were there things that were good about that time with life changing because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, um, I would say our family got closer. We built like a better relationship. I mean, not saying we didn't have a a good relationship before COVID, but I would say we built an even better relationship than we already had. I would agree. We played a lot of games and tried to do a lot of things to keep us laughing and not focusing on what was happening. So what did COVID change for you? Changed living situations. Like during COVID, we moved. Mm -hmm. And then my brother was living with you full time. Um, Something else that changed our family getting closer. I think that was a good thing for our family with all the things I was going on. Those were the biggest changes? Yeah, so you think there was anything that that changed me? 
or changed our life? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely obvious that you were in that group of young people whose mental health was affected by being online. You've always been a really social, happy person. And with everything that COVID took from us in terms of your your brother's dad and your dad being sick and then losing friends because you had to change schools, it was just a lot all at one time. And so it really affected your personality. I would say you're not as talkative, not as outgoing anymore. That would be the biggest change for me. I agree that our family got closer. It was nice to be home more and get to know each other more and spend more time together. But that was the biggest change is how it really impacted you and changed your personality. Like you just said, my personality did change. I I do realize that. I would say I keep to myself more often now than I used to. I would say I built a better relationship with my brother since I saw him more often. Um, I would say me and him are most definitely closer than we used to be. It's interesting talking about COVID like this. I don't know that we've ever sat down and had a conversation about it. We really like talked about all this stuff. But it's a good, good talk. Nice to you. Cool. That was Cameron Strong of Denver speaking with his mom, Keisha Linston. On that note, how can we best care for the ones we love? That question's been on the mind of 11-year-old Julius Murdoch for a few reasons. He shared his thoughts with his friend, 12-year-old Tyshawn Owens Kelly. So, Julius, can you tell me something traumatic that happened in your life? Uh, Probably one time. My mom, she was, like, cooking. She took a nap. We needed to wake her up because, like, she was sweating. I was, like, little. I didn't understand because I thought she was just, like, playing a prank. She wouldn't wake up, and we had to call the ambulance and have her go to the hospital. That just made me sad and think of it for the past few days. And I couldn't do anything, really. Did you end up having any traumas or sleep? issues after the fact yeah actually i basically stayed up all night thinking about what happened because i was really like dramatized because that's never happened to my mom before did you ever find out what ended up happening to your mother after that day she was good she was just like really hot i think she had like a little heart attack what did you do to come back from that traumatic event? Think positive. And when I see my mom yesterday, it made me, like, really happy. That's good. How is your mother currently? Good. She just had a baby, and now I'm a big brother. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you feel about having a baby brother or sister? It's good. Now I have somebody that I can look after. Maybe I can take care of sometimes when my mom's not around. 
might be able to always have her back and stuff. And my sister is pregnant. She still is, and she's 19. How do you feel about becoming an uncle? Good. I'm happy for my sister and stuff, and I really want to become an uncle and, like, somebody that I can look out for and somebody that can look up to me. That's good. That's good. Well, thank you for telling me your story, and have a great day. You too. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine helped produce those stories as part of a podcast class at the Viola Mann Summer Academy for Boys and Young Men of Color. The Sims Fayola Foundation's mission is to change the trajectory of the lives of boys and young men of color and to address the barriers that interfere with their success. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. So you'd like to know more about classical music? One way is to look at music through a theme, like animals in classical music. That's a lumbering elephant. Or maybe the theme is music used in Saturday morning cartoons. That's from the cartoon The Wabbit of Seville. I'm Carla Walker. Join me for a new way to look and listen to classical music every weekday at 1030 in the Music Room. For nearly 100 years, a shop on South Broadway in Denver has been home to musical instruments you often can't get anywhere else. It has served students and musicians alike and built a family along the way. But as CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane tells us, its time is coming to an end. Legacy. We hear it often used to acknowledge a high achievement or the long-lasting impact of a life. And when a family business can begin to see their 100th anniversary... job, I've been here since... 1996 or 1997? Uh, it'll be 22 years. 30 years. You know, it's either 19 or 20 years. There are many stories to share. The twists and turns, nooks and crannies that make up the store at the corner of Jewel and South Broadway began in 1930 when William J. Kolosny opened a musical instrument repair shop. So this building was basically a bunch of little storefronts that we kind of joined together like a group of mushrooms. David Kolasny runs the business his grandfather founded with his wife and his sister, Donna. And then this is my shop. So this is the front of the string shop, and, or the horn shop, and this is my, where I do the harp repair. It has become a community hub for music students and professional musicians alike. The core business includes selling, renting, and repairing band and orchestra instruments, and working closely with school music programs to support young musicians. Kolosny added his harp shop in 1980, which he says is the only harp shop between Chicago and Salt Lake, and he is the only harp technician between Kansas City and Salt Lake. So, I mean, we've always been, I guess, the way I put it is we're rich in, rich in friends, um, and music too, but, you know, musician friends, but, you know, it's all, you know, it's all, it's all kind of tied up, but this is all a mess in here at the moment, because, you know, obviously we're tearing everything up and getting everything out, and and doing what we do, but... Um. The reason they are tearing it all up? The family has made the difficult decision to close the store. Kolosny says for years, their bookkeeper said the music store was a crummy business model. And then COVID came. As school music programs changed or disappeared, so did the shop's business model, which relies on renting instruments. And so it came down to a decision of, am I going to do this and do it in an orderly fashion, or am I going to let a bank do it? Uh, and lose everything and have the bank tear it apart. 
The buyers of the shop own neighboring properties, but Kolosny isn't bitter. It's easy to paint developers as as villains, but they've been very as good as they could possibly be with us. I mean, they've uh, they they arranged to give us enough money at closing to pay off the the bills we had, the, the loans we had, and stuff. And uh, and they'll give us as much time to move out as we need, except once we close the loan, August fifteenth, we have to start paying them rent, and we're going to have a diminishing income. Mm-hmm. So it's a, in a, in our benefit to get out as quick as we can. The Kolosnys recently informed the staff as a group that they will close. Like most of the staff, Naftari Burns is a musician outside her role at the store. The news struck her hard. These kind of mom-pop shops are, they're, you know, being taken over by press one when you want this department, press two when you want this department. You don't, and you scream with frustration because you want to, you want someone to, to talk to, someone to help you walk you through something. And that's what we do here, but we're not here for the money. We're music peddlers. <laughs> this is the best kind of drug, the healthiest drug you can be on, is music. 16-year-old Ella Logan is one of Kolosny's newer customers, but it's all in the family for her, too. She learned about the store closing from the sign on the door. No, I just came to pick up my Suzuki book, actually, and I saw the thing on the side. I was like, oh my gosh, Dad, this is so sad. So, yeah, sad day. And I texted my mom, and she's probably going to respond and be like, cry face emoji, because she's known this place since she was 14. It's been her, been her home. Kolosny says this family business built a legacy with a lot of families. We've got families where we've had three people in a, in a family, three generations in a family, do business with us. I think it's stronger than I thought it was. But right now it's just kind of, I'm sorry, you know, don't, don't cry, you know. And what are you going to do? So lots of hugs and lots of, lots of things. But yeah, rich in friends. <laughs> David Kolosny plans to keep working, doing harp repair from a shop in his home. Kolosny Music is planning to close its doors for good on September 30th. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.